Hi, everyone. I'm George Davis, and I too want to welcome you to this online service of the Hershey Free Church. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. So if you've got a hard copy of a Bible, if you've got it on a mobile device, I encourage you to, uh, to join with me in turning, by, turning there. And by the way, as you're doing that, let me just uh, say this again, remind you that, you know, as we're in this season of transition, one of the things we're trying to do is just really get a pulse of where people are at. With that in mind, we've provided uh, and prepared a short wellness survey. We've, we've sent that out with our e-bulletin. And so if you could have a chance to fill that out, know that that would really be helpful for us just to know where uh, different people are at and what this experience has been like. So you will find that uh, attached to our most recent e-bulletin. And I would just ask you, you just take a couple of minutes. You can fill it out quickly. It's anonymous, but that feedback really is helpful to us. So thanks for doing that. As we come back to Colossians, let me ask you this question. Um, what does it take to get your attention? What does it take to, to, to get your attention? Uh, our reality is this. I mean, we live in a highly technological age, and as a result of that, with our interaction with uh, online uh, experiences, television, radio, you and I are constantly bombarded by information and images. Uh, particularly in light of the advent right, of our smartphone. I mean, just think about how much information uh, we experience on a daily basis. And this may surprise you, but advertising experts um, estimate that the typical American on an average day encounters somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 ads. It's an incredible number, isn't it? And, and I think because of that, uh, many of us have really developed skills at just ignoring and filtering out. I mean, we can scroll through things. We can move through a lot of information quickly and, and not really pay that much attention to it. So given that reality, what does it take for something to actually grab your attention? What does it take for you to slow down and pay attention? Maybe it's a, a particular topic written from a particular a perspective, you know, that headline, that kind of headline that will grab your attention. Maybe it's a, a you know, a funny viral that's uh, a funny video that's gone viral. And because of the person that forwarded it to you, you're going to pay attention to it. Maybe certain kinds of memes are, are always going to be something that, that grab your attention. So what does it take in the midst of this ocean of information for something to actually grab your attention? As you think about that uh, for a moment, here's, here's why I'm asking this question. So we're continuing our journey, our study of the book of Colossians. And as we talked about, it's a letter written to an early group of Christ followers, and, and they're facing certain challenges. It's written by that early Christian leader, the Apostle Paul. And I think he's aware that in the challenges they are facing, they're they're in a, a, a vulnerable situation, but it's also a strategic situation. And he writes, he writes the letter because he wants them to embrace this moment well. And as, as we've ever seen, as we've seen already, as he opens the letter, he greets them. He expresses thanks for some really positive things that are going on in their context. And then he describes how he is praying for them. And his prayer then leads into a description of, of really the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's here where Paul does something. And I think he's intentionally doing something to grab their attention. I mean, this is, this is kind of a moment in the letter where I think he works intentionally hard to grab their attention. 
Because here's what happens. When we get to the middle of chapter 1, the style of the letter changes. Now, you don't necessarily see this in English, but in the original Greek, his description of Jesus Christ is, is really written in a different style. It is more poetic. It's, it's more hymn-like. In fact, a number of scholars have argued that, that this is a place where Paul is actually quoting an early Christian hymn. I think that's possible, but I also think it's possible that he wrote it himself. And regardless of the particular background to this material, I think in any case, when, when the church received this letter, and they you know, probably would have been in small groups as the letter was read aloud, this, this probably would have been a moment where people just kind of set up and, and the change in style grabbed their attention. It's like, oh, pay attention to this. And I think Paul does this for one simple reason. He does it because he wants to focus their attention on the wonder of Jesus Christ. And so what what I want to ask you to do with with me (laughs) just for a moment is this. I mean, in the busyness of all that's going on in our lives, for this moment, will you allow Paul to grab your attention as well as, as he highlights the person and work of Jesus? So to do that, let's, let's just begin by reading the passage. So if you're, you're in Colossians 1, here's what we uh, begin reading in the middle of the passage. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones are powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And now this is, right, this is, this is just a powerful paragraph. So much in terms of imagery and information here. And maybe, maybe it would be helpful to, to understand what's going on by mapping out the structure. So let me do that, do that this way, right? We get to the first section and we read this, right? He's that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's, he's the firstborn of all creation. And, and as, as we begin this section, this idea of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, it communicates a couple of things. First of all, it is, I think, a, a powerful statement about the uniqueness, the divinity of Christ. On the, on the other hand, it's also language that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, right? Because in Genesis 1, we learned that we've been created in God's image. And now we're told that the ultimate manifestation of who God is, is found in Jesus. And this, this theme of creation then carries throughout uh, the first section of this passage. It's focused on Jesus and creation. Now, you'll notice this language, firstborn, 
of all creation, or firstborn over all creation. And that can be confusing because, you know, when we use the term firstborn in a family context, typically we're, we're talking about the, the oldest child. Uh, I'm a firstborn, so when we talk about my family, I'm, I'm the firstborn. However, this term in other contexts can also um, be used to communicate the idea of supremacy of rank, and that's the way it's being used here. Uh, that's what this entire section really communicates, that Christ is supreme over all creation. And to highlight that, the, the author continues to say things like, in him all things were created, and our, all things are created through him and for him. So this first section focuses on Christ and creation. Now let's skip down a little farther and, and get to the second major section, because the second major section, really beginning in verse 18, deals with Christ and redemption. If this deals with Christ and creation, this deals with Christ and redemption. And here we see that he, he is the beginning. And once again, this kind of takes us back to uh, Genesis language. He is the beginning. But now he is the firstborn from among the dead. Even has been, he was the firstborn over all creation. Now he is supreme through his resurrection. And, and what Paul is getting at here is, even as Christ is supreme over creation, he's now supreme over the new creation. He is now central to God's plan of restoration and renewal, right? The world is now being renewed and restored from its brokenness. And once again, Paul has an argument to, to kind of underscore that because he said God was pleased for that in Christ the fullness of deity would dwell. And as you read this section in highlighting Christ's work, Paul focuses on the image of reconciliation. It's the image of bringing two warring parties together. Uh, it, it, it's an image that acknowledges through our sin, we've really been at war with God. But now through his work, we can be brought back into relationship with him. We can be reconciled. We can experience his peace. And in being brought back into relationship with him, we can now experience new relationships with others. Because here the emphasis is on this work of renewal, this plan of restoration that Christ is bringing about through his body, which is this church. So notice, there really are two main sections to this poem, to this hymn, this ancient hymn. The first deals with Christ and creation. The second deals with Christ and Redemption, or Christ in new creation. And then right in the middle, you have just a hinge section that unites the two, right? He is before all things, Christ in creation. He is the head of his body, the church, Christ in redemption. So two main themes that we see here. And really the big idea is this. Christ is supreme in creation and supreme in redemption. Now, <laughs> let's be honest. I realize by now I may have lost some of you. I mean, these are, you know, these are really big ideas. There are some powerful language here. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of this passage is by a gifted New Testament scholar whose kind of one-word summary of this section is simply this. It's mind-blowing. 
But let's see if we can really begin to unpack some of what's going on here. Let's start with that theme of Christ and creation, right? What, what does it really mean to say that, you know, in Christ all things were created and in him all things hold together? It's, it's powerful language and, you know, it's very lyrical, it's beautiful language, but, but so what? What exactly does it mean? Well, here's one, here's one way to think about what Paul is saying here. Here's something that I think is implied in these statements. And that is this. I think part of what Paul is communicating to us by talking about Christ and creation, he's reminding us that there is a design and a direction to creation. There is, is a design and direction to the world in which we live. Frankly, you know, I think, I think one of the questions underlying a great deal of our cultural conflict at this moment is this. Is there a design to life, a givenness to life? Or is it simply a do-it-yourself project? Is there a design to life, a givenness to life and human flourishing? Or is it simply a do-it-yourself project? Is there really a plan, a pattern as to how we are to live, flourish, and thrive? Is there really a plan, a pattern to living well? Is there a pattern, a design to human experience? Or is it... Or is it simply, simply something that each of us get to determine on our own and it really just doesn't matter? Just, you know, be true to yourself. Pick your own path. And as long as you don't break the law, as you don't long, as you don't impinge on others, it just doesn't matter. Well, Paul is saying, no, there really is. There's a design to life. And history is moving in a, in, in a particular direction. And all of this is ultimately rooted in the person and the, the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, yes, there's a design and a direction to life. Jonathan Haidt is a um, best-selling author. He is a well-known social psychologist at New York University. And uh, one of his influential books is a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And this book really deals with the question, uh, you know, what's key to our happiness, right? Is, I mean, what, is, what really is the key to happiness and what leads to happiness? And based on his research, based on his work, here's kind of how he, how he describes his conclusion. He writes, just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger. Now, here's, here's, what, here's what I find so interesting about this quote. Here's what's so fascinating to me. Haidt is not, he's not a Christian. In fact, at, at times he has described himself as an atheist. Yet, yet, what I think he's describing here is actually a biblical view of creation. Right? Woven into the biblical storyline and, and Paul is tapping into this, is this, this assumption that there's a design, there is, is a direction to God's creation. And of course, the, the Bible says we've been, been created in his image, and because we've been created in his image, we have a contribution to make through our work. And because we've been created in his image, we, we are now intended to relate to one another well as, as, 
as image bearers. That's part of what it means to be created in his image. And of course, being created in his image also means we are to be connected to something larger because we are to be in relationship with God and we're to participate in what he is doing. And I think, I think the Apostle Paul would, in many ways, agree with this. He's saying, look, that there, is, there really is a design and a direction to life and human experience. And his affirmation of the supremacy of Christ over creation reminds us of this. Furthermore, in this passage, uh, Paul shows us that you know, this design is now being renewed through Christ's work of redemption and restoration. While individually and collectively and culturally our lives have been twisted and distorted by sin, God's plan of rescue and renewal is now underway through Christ. And, and, and this plan is at work through his church. Now, let's be honest. I realize at times church can be a very disappointing place. Many of you would probably have stories along those lines. I realize at times relationships in church can be difficult and frustrating. Likewise, I realize that um, it really feels like culturally the role of church, the influence of church is on the decline. Just as an example, you know, in my circles, pastoral circles, one of the ongoing conversations that now is underway is this. It involves just ways in which the experience of COVID for some has accelerated their disconnection from church. That's one of the things we're talking about. But nonetheless, in the midst of all of that, Paul says, don't lose sight of this. Paul says, don't lose sight of the fact that through Christ, that really the church is where the action is. This is where God is moving his work forward. The church by design is to be a place, a community of people who are brought together through their relationship with Christ and brought together through their relationship with his mission. Thus, we are to be a community of people that are introducing others to his message. We're to be a community where people learn how to live out our new identity. I mean, church is to to be the place where this process of renewal and reconciliation is actually taking place. Later, Later in the book, Paul's going to talk about, right, renewing our mind and renewing our thinking. He's going to talk about renewing our character as we learn certain character traits and develop certain character traits and unlearn others. He's going to talk about renewing our relationships as we learn how to do life together, how do we love one another, how we forgive one another when we fail and mess up. And, and so he envisions the church to be a place of renewal and reconciliation because the church is the outworking of Christ as Redeemer. Interestingly, uh, last week we had some people over for dinner at our house, and most of the people were younger couples who had, you know, been married only a few years, and and yet one of the couples was older. They've been married over forty years, and so after dinner, after sharing a meal, we sat around the table, and we were just talking about issues like what is it that helps marriage thrive? How do, how does marriage thrive into the long haul, and what does that look like? And, you know, as I reflect on that conversation, is talking about, you know, keys to 
longevity in marriage and how our relationship with Christ should influence our relationship with each other in a marriage context. I, I thought, this is church. This is, this is what church is to be. It's this place of reconciliation and restoration because Christ is working his plan of redemption through his church. So Paul writes this church. And he says, I want to grab your attention, right? Two eyes right here. And I want to show you who Jesus Christ is. And in showing you who Jesus Christ is, I want you to see that he is supreme over creation. There's a design, a direction of creation in history. And I want you to see that he is supreme over redemption, that he is carrying out his plan among his followers in his church. Now, with that in mind, let me just kind of close with two simple observations on living out what what Paul is showing us here. So let me share these with you. As I recognize Christ's supremacy, and that's what Paul is showing us, as I recognize Christ's supremacy, I will, first of all, confront the lies. Now you're like, what does that mean? What do you mean confront the lies? Well, to explain this, let me give you just a little bit more of the background. We're just, we'll come back to this in chapter 2, but let me kind of preview what we'll talk about uh, there later. In terms of the background of this letter, it's important to understand that most likely the majority of, of, of these Christians receiving this letter were individuals who came out of a Gentile background. And they had come out of religious backgrounds that had really taught them you have to do certain religious rituals in order to get the gods on your side. That was the framework that had been a part of their past. That was the culture they grew up in, right? And I think associated with that were certain fears, fears about the supernatural realm, fears about forces and situations beyond their control. And now as followers of Christ, they are encountering false teaching. And we'll see that more in chapter 2. And that false teaching is tapping in to those earlier fears. That false teaching is causing them to wonder, have I done enough to be in right relationship with God? What happens if I do the wrong thing? What happens if I don't measure up? And Paul warns them, don't don't be taken in by this. Don't be taken captive by these lies. But here's here's the interesting thing that I think Paul understands. He understands that fueling their fear is an inadequate view of God and what God is doing through Christ. That's why Paul works so hard to grab their attention, right? It's like he, you know, takes their their hand, their face in his hands and says, "Okay, now this is what I want you to look at." That's why he works so hard at focusing their attention on the person and work of Jesus Christ because he understands that the only way to defeat those lies is to embrace the truth of who Jesus is. Now, let's just think about this for a moment in our own context. Now, it's important to acknowledge that that fears, anxieties can be complex issues. And in no way do I want to minimize their complexity or the different factors that can be at work. But we need to understand and acknowledge this. One of the factors 
that can fuel our fear, that can fuel our anxiety, is an inadequate view of God, an inadequate view of who Christ is and what he is doing. So can I suggest that when I find myself in some of those hard places, it can be helpful to ask, at some level, have I been taken captive by a lie? Have I been taken captive by a lie that diminishes the person and work of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's the lie that, you know, God won't love me if I don't measure up. Maybe it's the lie, I can't trust him, so I need to control life on my own. Maybe it's the lie that, you know, due to my mistakes or mistakes of others, I can never experience God's goodness. Am I being held captive by a lie? If that's the case, I've got to confront it with the truth. I've got to confront it with the truth of Scripture. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. He realized that their fear is being driven by an inadequate view of Christ and what God is doing through him. So he works as hard as he can to grab their attention and say, look at this. Look at Christ, supreme over creation and supreme over, over redemption. And now allow that truth to to challenge the lies that have become rooted in your, think- your thinking and rooted in your mind. J.P. Moreland is a gifted philosopher, actually a prolific writer, um, but he's also someone that in different seasons of his life has battled debilitating anxiety and depression. And he's, he's written very openly about his experience. And, and he's noted how Scripture could, could be helpful at times in responding to to his challenges. For instance, one of, the, one of the places in Scripture that he's found very helpful is Psalm 46.10, right? Be still and know that I am God. And for him, here's how he's taken time <laughs> to, to engage that verse and meditate and reflect on that verse. At times, he's found himself just you know, sitting quietly and meditating on the truth of that verse. You get to that part, be still. And for him, as he wrestled with being still before God, he wrestled with the question, what do I need to let go of, right? What do I need to leave behind? What thoughts, what assumptions, what attitudes do I need to let go of? What do I need to confront in order to see God as God? And so when we take seriously what Paul is doing here is he's wanting us to see the supremacy of Christ. I think in living this out, at times, it means I've got, to, I've got to confront the lies that take root in my mind that diminish the wonder of Jesus. So I need to, I need to confront the lies. But I also need to, I need to commit to his plan. Remember, in describing the work of Christ, Paul highlights the fact that this is taking place through his body, the, the church. Now, let's be honest again. It, you know, this is a cultural moment where it feels like it's, it's easy to complain. I mean, there's so much going on in the world around us, particularly over the last year, ways in which it feels like at times we've been let down by government, by institutions, a lot of cultural issues that have been highly divisive, and it's easy to complain about the people that disagree with us. I think, it, you know, truthfully, we live in a moment where it's just easy to be a critic, Likewise, it can feel like, you know, with all this going on around me, there's nothing I can do 
There's no difference that I can make. However, when we, when we embrace the supremacy of Christ, I think we're encouraged to see that God is at work <laughs> through his church. And at times, yes, it, it's, it's disappointing and it, it kind of <laughs> feels wobbly, but yet this is still the place where he is at work. And if you take seriously Jesus Christ and the supremacy of Christ, I think you have to take seriously his church. So that, that just leads to a question that, that I would ask you. So how can, how can you be part of his church? What does that look like for you? As we come out of COVID, we're, we're really wanting this to be a season of reconnecting because we've in so many ways been disconnected and fractured over the last year. And for some of us, I think that means we've got to be intentional in recognizing that, you know, there have been some relationships over the last year that we've neglected that we need to invest in. So what does it look like for you to re-engage? For some of you, you're new to our church. You haven't perhaps even set foot on campus yet. And, and we would love to tell you how you can take a next step in, in getting connected and what that might look like. So uh, feel free to start that conversation, and we would, we would love to continue it with you. So how can, how can I commit to his plan? So Paul says, look, I want you to see the supremacy of Christ, his supremacy over creation, his supremacy over redemption. And I think flowing out of that, as we recognize that, it will encourage us to confront the lies that can take root in our life and commit to his plan to be a part of what he is doing through his church. Last month, uh, we were visiting my, our son in Seattle, and as, as we were there, one night we went out to a, uh, a restaurant. It was a rooftop restaurant. It was a great time together as family, and as the meal was completing, I, I kind of looked at my family and said, I just, I just want to go outside for a moment. So I walked out onto the balcony just kind of for one final glimpse, and you know, off to my left was the skyline of Seattle with the Space Needle and other buildings. In front of me was the beautiful waters of Puget Sound, and off in the distance were the Olympic Mountains, and right behind the mountains was the sun as it was beginning to set. I mean, it was just this postcard moment. And I stood there, and I, I just wanted to take it in. In a similar way, as Paul writes this letter, he changes style, I think, to intentionally grab our attention. He changes his style because he wants you and me to take this in. The wonder of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let me just pray this passage for us. As a reminder, as we're going through this book, we're, we're, we're seeking to pray through the book. And if you'd like a copy of that prayer guide, you can find it at hfcinfo.com. So as we continue to pray through the book, let me, let me just pray this for us. Gracious God, in the midst of the busyness and all the things on our minds, I, I hope in some way we can slow down and, and just stand with Paul just to marvel at the wonder of Jesus Christ. I pray that, that in the midst of, of what sometimes feels like a world out of control and, and circumstances and our lives out of control, we could be reminded that Christ is supreme over his creation. 
And that means there's, there's a design and a direction to life. And with that design and direction comes the invitation to, to live according to the way you have wired us and to be a part of what you're doing. So I pray that we would take that seriously. And I pray also that we would see not simply Christ is supreme over creation, but also supreme over redemption. That now he is bringing about this plan of rescue and renewal. And particularly in those moments when we get frustrated by so much around us, may we not give in to helplessness because we understand that you are at work through your church. And this plan will not be thwarted. History is moving in a particular direction. And it's being guided by your work of reconciliation. And we've been called into that. Father, this paragraph, it's big, it's mind-blowing, it's powerful. But may the wonder of it challenge us, encourage us, enrich us. May, May it challenge us in a way that for some of us even now, there's certain lies that need to be confronted because they're lies that diminish the person and work of Jesus Christ. So may we confront the lies, and also may we be committed to being a part of what you are doing through your church. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now as we start a new week, I encourage you to come back to this passage. And and pray it in different ways for yourself, for those that are part of your family, for our church family, and even for those in your broader sphere of influence. I pray particularly this week that the wonder of Jesus Christ will grab your attention. Amen.